We are concluding, and I know you guys are going to say, oh, really, do we have to end it? I actually uh, asked the staff for an extension of a week on a message, and they voted it down. So this is it. This is the last week of you asked for it, questions that people have about God and faith in the church. Um, way back in the first part of January, we asked the first question, don't all religions lead to God? Then we talked about what happens after we die. In week number three, Luke preached a great message, if God is loving, then what about all the suffering and evil in the world? And by the way, all these messages are online. And yes, I actually went to my podcast and I subscribed to Sebastopol Christian Church and it came up on my podcast. Like there it is. And I was like, wow, we're in the 21st century. This is amazing. So week number four, we addressed a controversial topic. What about someone who falls away from the faith? What is God going to do about somebody like that? And then last week, we talked about if there's really only one church, you know, Jesus prays that we would be one, that all of us would be one. If there's really only one true church, then why are there so many denominations? And now we've reached uh, week number six, uh, could be the most controversial question of all. So I'm glad you guys are here for that. I hope you're tuned in. And maybe that's why the, the uh, people are saying the uh, auditorium's a little cold today. I don't want anybody nodding off. To this one. I don't think you will be able to, but the question for today is, why do God and Christians make such a big deal about sex? Yes, we're going to be talking about that today, three days before Valentine's. It's probably an appropriate topic to talk about. Um, I want to show something to you first when we're dealing with such an issue. You know, where do we get our ideas? Where do we get our opinions? Where do we get our proclamation about what God thinks about sex? And I want you to, I want you to know that we, as I said last week, that we get our authority, we get our doctrine, our teaching about sex or any other topic that's out there from the Word of God, from the Bible. And if you'd show the next slide, please. I'd like to just remind you, this is what we put up there last week when we were talking about if there's so many denominations out there, how do we find a good church? Well, we want to find a life-giving church who upholds the Bible, upholds the Word of God, who honors and preaches the Bible faithfully, who worships the Lord Jesus enthusiastically, and who takes care of God's sheep, His people, the people of His pasture, lovingly. So we want to uphold the Word of God in the Bible, and that is where this uh, topic is going to be addressed from, from that per perspective. And I would invite you um, to bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you're the one who authored the Scripture. I know it was written by human hands, but Lord, we believe that they were inspired. God breathed uh, by you who who guided the thoughts and the teachings of your apostles to write down what they wrote so that we would have your truth. And Lord Jesus, you said that we should be sanctified. We should be set apart unto you by the truth. And then you said, your word is truth. So Lord, we pray that uh, the truth would come out today, that we would speak it in love. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move powerfully in this place today, both through the words that I say and through the ability of the listeners to capture, to listen, to understand, and to put into practice that which your word tells us. Lord, we depend on you, and we give this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Let me start off by making some comments about, you know, what does God think about sex from a biblical point of view? And uh, there's four thoughts that I have. These are the fill in the blanks. Uh, this is like zing, curveball, because I know a lot of you guys wait till the very end of the message, and then I say, oh, by the way, there's some action points. You need to write some, some things down. Now I'm going to have you write some things down right out the gate, right in the beginning. So if you have a pen, uh, go ahead and, and write it down. If you don't have a pen and you don't have a bulletin, uh, look and try to find a Christian who has one, and maybe you can borrow one from them. All right, here we go. Uh, number one, biblical truth. Number one, God is pro-sex. He is for it, not against it. Yeah, I, I, that may surprise some people, but God is pro-sex. He created it. Number two, he, didn't just, he isn't just pro-sex. He's the one who created it. He's the one who created us, and he's the one who created us male and female, and God is the one who created sex. Number three, sex is a great gift from God. Sex is a great gift from God. It is something that he gave to us as human beings to bless us, not to curse us in any way at all. And finally, number four, and this is where the controversy comes in for the rest of the people who don't have, or who are not under the authority of the Lord Jesus and his word, sex is for married people. So, I want to get into, uh, when you talk about sex and what does God think of sex and why do we make such a big deal in the church about sex, I want to go back to the, to the original uh, first scriptures where God in his word talks about creating us, human beings, and how he created us and what God says about marriage, about sex, about bringing the first man and woman together. God's story shows us how we are made and how God intended us to function properly. So let's look together first in the book of Genesis. All right, it says in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27, and you have it up on the screen. You're welcome to get your own Bible and follow along as well if you'd like. Uh, this is where in the sixth day of creation, God has created all things and he saves his highest creation until the last he creates mankind. And so God said there, Therefore, or he said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So from the very beginning, we see that, that not only did God create us as human beings, but he created us in his image and he created us male and female. It's specified that we were created in his image. Now, what does that mean to be made in God's image? It means that we share a likeness to our creator. And for humanity, when God created us male and female, I think God is saying that from the very beginning, gender is important. It's considered an important feature in God's creation. He didn't create us androgynous. He didn't just say, I'm going to create a human being. He's going to create us not just any human being, but each of us when we are born, we are born to a certain gender. We are either male or female. Mankind is stressed 
as male and female that he created. He didn't choose gender-neutral human beings. So gender is not just a local construct of our culture or our society. It's not just something we can assign to ourselves. Gender is an important part of God's design. Male and female, he created them. And so God then, he creates mankind, completes his masterpiece by creating man and woman. Gender was God's idea from the beginning. Remember at the end of when he finished up his creation right before he rested and he created the Sabbath there because God was finished with his work of creation. It said that God created everything and he looked out and he saw the man and woman and he said it is very good. So then after God creates the man and the woman, God brings the woman to the man because it was God who looked at the man by himself and he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. The first time we see in the Bible that God says something is not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. And that's why God says, I will create a helper suitable for him. So then God presents the woman to the man and the man and the woman come together and The author of Genesis says in verse 24 of chapter 2, he says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. That's another way of saying sexual relations. They will become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So God's story begins with this amazing creator God. He's designing human beings as male and female And then he brings the male and female together into this holistic union that he calls marriage, that he, this husband-wife relationship. It is God's intention for the husband and wife to become one flesh. And that one flesh union entails sexuality. There's the gift from God. So the sexual desire that men and women have for each other is actually a good thing. And we'll get later on in the message, we'll get to see how we sort of messed it up later on. Now in James chapter 1, the author says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift. God gives us this gift and he says it is a good gift. So in light of of Valentine's Day, in light of giving gifts to one another, We just want you to know that God has a great gift for us. God has a great gift for mankind. And uh, I thank you to Erin Briggs. She made up this nice gift box for us. And this is the gift that God made for us. And it is called sex. So let's fast forward now to Jesus and his ministry. Because Jesus was asked a number of questions about marriage, about male-female relationships, about divorce. The question came to Jesus in Matthew 19 from actually religious critics who were trying to trip him up and they were saying, hey Jesus, uh, the law of Moses says that a man can divorce his wife for just about any reason if she becomes displeasing to him. What do you say about it? And Jesus, interestingly enough, Jesus, uh, after being questioned by these Jewish leaders about marriage and divorce, Jesus points them back to the very beginning, back to the time of creation when God created the first man and woman. And Jesus says these words in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. So here it is. You know, th this is probably where you're saying, wow, uh, is there any more to this message than just this box with a three-letter word on it? And the answer is yes. God did give us this great gift. It's a great gift of sex. But uh, God also put some boundaries upon this gift. And he said this great gift is for married people. And then Jesus says in verse 6, what therefore, by the way, I love to say this, right when I pronounce them husband and wife, I remind them that Jesus says these very words. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man or let no one separate. So you might ask the question, okay, if God gives us this great gift of sex and it's for married people, what is sexuality for anyway? Why did God make us male and female? Why did he create us this way anyway? What is sexuality for? Well, it's for fidelity, for faithfulness. It's for complementing one another. It's for procreation. That's where new human beings come from, in case you weren't aware of that. It's for unity in a marriage relationship. It's for learning to fulfill God's purpose in our lives as males and females. So we come now to a teaching of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Those of you who know the Bible knew I was going to get here eventually, where God is saying, okay, now that we're talking about uh, being united uh, with Christ by faith, now that we are Christ followers, now that we're trying to live a life that pleases God, now that we're being forgiven and we're going to live the kind of life that God wanted us to live all, all the way or all the time, God, what do you want us to live like? How do you want us to live? And God says it very clearly through the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Say, what is God's will regarding sexuality? Well, here it is. It is God's will that you should be sanctified meaning you should be set apart unto God, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And then it says, and I'll, I'll give you a comparison, not this other way, not in passionate love, lust, excuse me, that's not love, <laughs> not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Sexual standards of behavior in the Roman Empire, and this is the first century, this were to the audience to whom Paul was originally writing, sexual standards were pretty low in the Roman Empire. And you know what? I doubt the, those standards are all that different in our society today. Sexual intercourse outside the marriage relationship, it was a common temptation. And so Paul says, for those of you who choose to follow Christ and to submit to his leadership, you have a higher standard of behavior to live up to. Guess what? I mean, this, this passage is pretty clear. I don't think there's any wobble room in it. It says, any sex outside of the marriage relationship is forbidden. It will, damage, it will do damage to you. It will do damage to other people. And I think God knows us so well. He knows the power of sex. He knows the power that it has in our lives. And he says it's a great gift, but it's got to be practiced in the right way. It's got to be practiced in the right way. So it's surprising that a lot of people out there do not like this kind of restriction. I mean, have you ever talked to anybody who probably would not agree with this particular uh, standard of behavior for somebody who claims to be a Christ follower? And again, I want to say this, this 
what God thinks about sex and sexual behavior, this is for followers of Jesus Christ. I don't think you and I should expect or demand that anybody who doesn't name the name of Jesus, who doesn't claim to be a, a believer in Jesus Christ and follow him, why should we expect them to live up to this standard of behavior? We follow Christ and we have a hard time living up to this standard of behavior. So it's not for those outside God's kingdom or the family of God. It's for those who are in God's family. This is our, our standard of behavior. But I want to address a couple of myths, a couple of false ideas that are out there that, are, that run counter to this idea of, of here's God's gift. God is pro-sex. He created it. And sex is for married people. Uh, what are some of the myths out there that are saying, you know what? You don't have to live according to these restrictions. You can live according to an, another more permissive uh, style of behavior regarding sex. And you're going to be way better off if you do. Let me talk about the first myth. Myth number one, sex makes dating relationships better. Sex makes dating relationships better. That's the first myth. Here's what we think. We think, okay, uh, God created us male and female. He gave us this attraction toward, pe toward certain people. He, and so if you have this attraction to them, then it might even progress as you're, as you're starting to see them or get them to know them a little better. It goes from attraction to chemistry. And well, if you have this chemistry, I think that's just a sign. I think it's just a feeling that you've got to automatically now go into sexual intimacy. When I was growing up, there was a progression of songs. And it would, you know, from attraction to chemistry to sexual in intimacy. And the, the song progression in my youth would go something like this. There'd be a song by Foreigner. And the song would be something like, I've been waiting for a girl like you to come into my life. Attraction. Here we go. And then you got REO Speedwagon following that up. Well, I can't fight this feeling anymore. You know, right? So now you have attraction. You have chemistry. And now you sink into Marvin Gaye. Let's get it on. So that's the next thing. So you have attraction, chemistry, sexual intimacy. That's what we think. That's what the myth is. But let me, let me say the trouble with that. The trouble with that uh, short circuit of sexual relationship is there's no relationship building. There's no commitment. And the infatuation and chemistry that you start with doesn't last. It fades apart over time, and now you're just left with two bruised souls. You know, by the way, uh, the sexual revolution in the United States of America began in the 1960s, and we've had 50 years to study it. We've had 50 years to see what the sexual revolution has done to our society, and we've seen the results. Sociolog sociological studies now have proven that casual sex and, quote, hooking up Increase risky behaviors like heavy drinking, sexually transmitted diseases, depression, permissive sexual behavior, sabotages maritable, marital stability. How do I say that in, in layman's terms? Permissive sexual behavior sabotages marital stability. That means that if you were promiscuous before you got married, the chances are you're going to be promiscuous or chances are you're going to be more promiscuous after you got married. Uh, even living together before marriage, cohabitation, you know, you know, you got to kick the tires, you got to drive the car before you buy it. 
all those kinds of uh, analogies that are out there regarding sex and, and relationships, even living together before marriage or cohabitation greatly increases marital dissatisfaction. There are actually higher rates of adultery. There are higher divorce rates because of this. And it just proves once again that God knows us better than we know our, ourselves. His ways are higher than our ways. So when God gives us a command, when he gives us a prohibition about sex, when he says, you know, this is a powerful, great gift I've given you, sex, but it is not, it's not to be practiced outside the boundaries of the married relationship. God is doing it for our own good, not for our own bad. Here's what God thinks about the proper sequence. So God thinks this way. He says, okay, there's going to be attraction. That's the way I created you, male and female. There's going to be chemistry. But before you jump the gun, you need to have friendship. You need to have a relationship. You need to have this actual thing that is so, seems so taboo now in our society, what we call commitment. What, what, when we say these vows to one another that I will be faithful to you, exclusive to you, forsaking all others for life, that, that commitment actually creates a safety net in that relationship where people who are casual toward each other and not committed, they don't have that. So then once you have the commitment, now you have marriage, and now within that security and that, that bond of marriage, now you have sexual intimacy. So the truth is, sex is a great gift from God, and it's for married people. So let me be really clear on what, so that's what sex is for. That's the good part about sex. That's the great part about sex. I talked about how society, we kind of messed it up. But let me tell you what sex is not for. Sex is not a gift for friends with benefits people. Sex is not a gift for drunk at a party people. Sex is, and by the way, I was reading some statistics on the hooking up culture, and they were saying that it, in 80 to 90% of the time, especially the women, that where the practice is hooking up with just casual sex, don't even hardly know the person. They're just getting together for physical relations. When they do that, the, the woman is, is heavily inebriated almost 80 to 90% of the time. Now, there's, you might even ask the question, why do you see the need or why do you feel the need to get so drunk in order to do that? Doesn't that even give you a hint that something might be wrong or something might be questionable about that behavior? So it's not for drunk at a party people. Sex is not a gift for if I don't, he'll break up with me people. In other words, sex doesn't glue the relationship together without the commitment that you have in an exclusive relationship. And sex is not for, quote, we're in an exclusive relationship for right now, people. So, you know, you can talk about exclusive relationship, but then they just say for right now. Because people that aren't married tend not to stay monogamous. I don't know if you knew that. God's ideal, again, sex is a great gift from God. It's exclusively designed for those who are married. God's design, and I think it's on the next slide here. God's design is this. God's design is for full sexual expression to be between a man and a woman in the safety and commitment of marriage. Another scripture from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed be kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So that was the first myth that we're trying to bust. And that is, the first myth is that sex, 
makes dating relationships better. Now, how about the second myth? We're only going to talk about two, and then I want to talk about something else. The second myth is this. Sex is strictly physical. Sex is strictly physical. It's just purely anatomical. It's just a mixing of desires and hormones and body parts, and there's nothing more to it than that. Well, what about the emotional component of the sexual relationship? I mean, again, don't you think our Creator knows us better than we know our, ourselves? Don't you think He would have something to say about the right behavior and the reasons for the right behavior? And don't you think that might be why the Apostle Paul is writing these words in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, and don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. Paul goes back to Genesis and he says, remember that where he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So the two are united into one. That happens whether or not you say the vows of marriage. But the person who's joined, in other words, with the prostitutes. So the scripture says the two are united into one, but the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So sex, the truth is, sex is not just a physical act. It is a mingling of souls. Together, the man and the woman were to, to form an inseparable union. And this is a spiritual fusing together of their heart, their body, their mind, and their soul. Um, there is such a thing out there. There is, a, there is a law of sexuality. People may try to deny it. People may try to poo-poo it off or say, that's just religion talk. But I believe that there is a law out there, a, a physical, psychological law that is within every human heart, what we call the law of sexuality. This law recognizes that in the sexual act, there is this bond that happens. And it's not just a physical bond. It is a soulish bond that happens. A piece of your soul is given to another person in the sexual act. That's why, uh, and this man is a professor at the University of Texas. He's a Christian sociologist and author, Ted Bujashevsky. That's why I spelled it out phonetically, because I don't think you could ever pronounce it otherwise. This author writes, sex is like applying adhesive tape. Promiscuity is like ripping the tape off again. And if you rip it off, rip it off and rip it off, eventually the tape won't stick anymore. And so what happens when you rip that relationship apart after the, the physical sexual act is it bruises the individual. It bruises your life. It chips a piece of your soul away to where you begin to feel less than whole. You see, God created us. He knows about this law of sexuality. That is why God is trying to protect us from falling into sexual sin. He knows the harm that it will do to us. And that's why God says, flee. He says, run from sexual sin. By the way, that's why I wrote, run, don't walk. Because God doesn't say to walk away. God doesn't say, you know, hey, think about it a while, contemplate it a while, and then, you know, make a decision. No, he says flee, run, run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. 
So we are to honor God with our body. Now, uh, so far, all I've been talking about is what I call normal sexual attraction between a male and a female, between a male for a female and a female for a male. But there are other sexual identities out there. Uh, what about sexual identity, for example, with a person who asks a question, well, what happens if I have feelings towards someone of the same sex? Does that mean I'm gay? Or what if I struggle with transgender issues? Or what if I'm just not sure who I am or what I am or what I'm feeling? You know, I have, you know, a person could say, I have these really strong feelings and desires and they leave me confused. Friends, the truth is that, that we live in this world and we have messed up our sexuality in the human race. We've lived in a fallen and broken world where truth and goodness, they're marred, they're distorted. God knows us. God loves us, every one of us. He knows our thoughts and our struggles and our feelings. And as we're trying to navigate this incredibly power, this incredibly powerful area of sexuality in our lives, God wants to help us. Someone asked this question, and I think sometimes they, they, they love to ask followers of Christ this question. He says, what do you think? Does God love gay people? What do you think God thinks of gay people? And the answer is, you know what? God loves them unconditionally, just the same as God loves straight people. And you know why? Because all of us, whether gay or straight, we are all human beings. We are all created in God's image. The Latin term that is used for this is imago Dei. Imago Dei means created in the image of God. All human beings are image bearers of God. He made us for relationship with Him. And Jesus puts us all, regardless of our background or preferences, Jesus puts us all into just one category. We are all priceless to Him. The truth is, all of us are somewhere along this spectrum of life, trying to figure out how to know God, how to understand God and His ways, and how to trust Him that His ways are the best ways. Here's another truth about people who have these feelings. You know, what, if, what happens if I struggle and I have feelings towards someone of the same sex? Here's another truth. Sexual attraction is not the same as sexual behavior. Having feelings for someone is not the same as acting on them. You know, and that goes both ways, by the way. For people like us who have, for people like me, I'll just speak for myself, who have opposite sex attraction, Jesus calls us to practice self-control. Does he not? You know, you can be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex, but you are not to act on that. Jesus calls, calls us to practice self-control. And for people who have same-sex attraction, Jesus also calls us to practice self-control. You know, the beauty of Jesus is knowing that he, when he walked this earth and became a human being, the Bible talks about Jesus being tempted. And the Bible says very clearly that Jesus was tempted in every way. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And I don't know if you thought about that. If Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin, you've got to think that every kind of temptation out there that humanity has ever faced, Jesus had to face that. Jesus faced every kind of temptation, yet he did not yield to that temptation 
and went into sin. Jesus says to any of us who wants to follow him, Jesus says, you want to follow me? He says, the road isn't going to be easy. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9? He said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, anyone wants to follow me, let him, pick, let him deny himself, let him pick up his cross daily, and, and let him follow me. So it, the road isn't going to be easy in following Christ. So we go back to our mandate. God expects us, his followers, people who represent Christ here in the body of Christ, in the church, he expects us to, quote, speak the truth in love. And our truth doesn't come from public opinions. It doesn't come from polls. Our truth is found in God's word in the Bible when which followers of Jesus, we submit to that authority. The Bible is our truth source. We go back to God's design for our sexuality when from the beginning, he created them male and female. And God designed the full sexual expression in the safety and context of a, marriage rela of a married relationship between a man and a woman. And so sexual activity outside the marriage relationship between a man and a woman is sin. You know, I think a lot of people who identify themselves you know, just being honest, a lot of people who identify themselves out there as gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual, they already know what the Bible says about this topic. They've been beaten over the head, I'm sure, sometime in their life with Leviticus 18 or Romans chapter 1. But the question I have for them or for us is, have they seen the hope and the good news that is in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Because the topic of homosexuality comes up in this passage, but it has a different kind of a twist and a flavor that I think they're used to seeing. So it may not seem like good news at first when we read this passage, but hang in there because I really think it is good news, not just for anybody, for anybody, no matter what their sexual orientation. It says right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and I ask this question, and I want you to maybe, as you're reading this, I want you to think of yourself and you want to say, where do, I, where do I identify with this passage? Where do I fall under this kind of sin? Because all of us are sinners in some way, shape, or form. And the real question is, what is your brand of sin? It's not just like some sins are little bitty sins and some sins are big sins. God says that all sin is lawlessness. All sin is a a it stems from a desire in our heart not to submit to God, to do our own thing, to follow our own path, to be our own boss. So look at this passage of scripture and see if you identify in here to see maybe you uh, are, are guilty of at least one or more of these sins. Paul says this, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and again, that word means any kinds of sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, that is a pretty long list. If I counted it right going through that list, I can count up 10 different kinds of sin here. And guess what? Only three of the 10 sins have to do with sexual behavior. Two of the three have to do with heterosexual behavior. So here's a question for you and me. Are you on this list? 
And I think if you're honest, we have to say not just, yeah, I'm on this list, but where am I on this list? How many of these am I guilty of myself? You see, the truth is, Paul gives a, a scripture like that, and it's meant to convict. It's meant for us to look ourselves honestly in the mirror like God sees us and says, wow, the kind of behavior that I've been doing that maybe I didn't think was so bad, I look and says, God thinks it's pretty bad. God thinks that I need to change that kind of behavior. That kind of sin separates me from God, just like your sin, whatever brand of sin that is, that sin separates you from God. So there's really no them and us when it comes to this topic. There's really only us. All of us are in dire need of God's grace. And fortunately, and, and I told you this was going to be bad news, good news. You just saw the bad news. Let me get to the good news. Because look what God does now. God says, and that is what some of you were. Past tense. That's what some of you were. But how did God change us? How, how did we go from being lost to being found? How did we go from uh, sinners in need of a Savior to now being, now being in the family of God in Christ? Paul says this, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If my, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, now that's good news because Paul says here you were washed. That means that you and I, we don't have to go clean ourselves up and then hope at some point that a holy God will accept us. According to this, God already loves us. He already accepts us just as we are right now in the middle of our sin and our moral failings, wherever they are. The, God proves his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the middle of our own moral failings, that's the deepest issue in our common humanity. We are all called, no matter what our background is, to humbly turn to God in faith and ask him to forgive us and allow Jesus to be the leader of our lives. Let me say this when I say like one other thing. Beware when somebody says one other thing because now they're going to get to like, here's the crux of the matter. One other thing. We have to resist our culture's false view of love. Our culture tells us that love means full acceptance. People say that if you really love them, then you'll embrace them on their own terms. Not even tolerance is enough because tolerance is basically the idea of, uh, I can respect you even if I disagree with your beliefs, right? That would be what's called tolerance. Uh, our society isn't even going to accept tolerance anymore. For many, it's, it's full acceptance and endorsement or it's nothing. It's full acceptance or endorsement of any lifestyle or, you know, they say, you hate me. And I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's right and I don't think that's the way I feel at all because I feel nothing but love and grace toward everyone because they're all created in God's image, no matter what their background is. But I want you to, I also want to remind you of our model Jesus and how did Jesus treat people who were caught in sexual sin? You remember in John's gospel at, uh, chapter eight, the woman was caught in adultery and she was brought before Jesus. And the question I always ask is, oh, she was caught in the act of adultery. Where's the guy that she was caught with? You know, where is he in the whole thing, right? So anyway, she gets dragged before Jesus and the Pharisees, and he says, you know what? The law says that we're to stone her to death. What do you say? And you remember what Jesus said? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. 
And it says one by one, they dropped their rocks and they all started walking away, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. And finally, Jesus looked at the woman uh, who was caught in adultery and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one here, Lord. And you remember what Jesus said right then? And that's, that's the whole attitude that I think he's calling us to have. Jesus said to that woman right there, he says, neither then do I condemn you, but now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't just let it go. Jesus didn't just say, oh, that's all right. We all mess up from time to time. Have a good life. Jesus said, go and leave your life of sin. Jesus loved everybody, but he never compromised the truth. Here's the way Jesus did it. In John's gospel, when it's describing who Jesus is, it says, for the law was given through Moses. The law. Do this and you're okay with God. Disobey this command and you're in trouble with God, right? The law was given through Moses. But then it says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Oh, that we could find the right combination of grace and truth for our world today. We're going to need help from the one who washes us. We're going to need help from the one who sanctifies us and justifies us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do that, and if we act like Jesus toward everyone, we are going to have hearts full of grace, full of love and acceptance, full of truth spoken in love, and we're going to walk arm in arm together toward God, toward His holiness, and toward moral purity in our lives. It's the only way it's going to happen. It's not an easy message to share. And I struggled over what I was going to write, what I was going to say, how much I was going to say, because I certainly don't want to offend anybody unnecessarily. I do think, I, I, I remember what somebody said when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and he says, in your Christian life, when you share the gospel, the gospel itself is going to be offensive because the gospel basically says, look, we have all disobeyed God. We have all gone astray. We are all in need of God's forgiveness and his grace. And if we will humble ourselves, if we will come to God in humility and ask him to forgive us, God is willing to do that. But if you don't recognize that you're a sinner in need of a savior, you're not at the right starting point to become a follower of Christ. And and I remember being told this, it says, if anything is going to offend anybody, let it be the gospel itself that offends them, not me, not my attitude, not my judgmental, condemning, uh, you know, bigoted uh, behavior. Let's, let's banish all that from our lives. Let's realize that everybody is created in the image of God and that God loves everybody and that God has a plan for everybody and we keep pointing people to Jesus because We'll let Jesus deal with their life. We'll let Jesus figure out step-by-step, day-by-day, how to help them grow in their relationship with him, and he will help them figure out what to do with their sexuality. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. And with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I just want to remind you of that scripture that says, God proves his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so no matter what that particular brand of sin is or those brands of sin are, Lord, we, we have confidence that you already paid for them because while we were still sinners, you died for us. And like so many today, 
Lord, we want to experience your forgiveness. We want to experience your cleansing. God, we want to put our trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And if you've never made that decision before, if you've never crossed that line of faith, I invite you to do that. I invite you to just come to God humbly and say to him, as that, that old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Are you ready to let him lead your life? Are you ready to let him show you the right path that he wants you to live? If you are, then pray this prayer with me. Just say something, a conversation with God is what prayer is. Just say something like, Lord Jesus, today I come before you and I believe that you gave your life when you died on the cross for me. You died so that I could live. And today, Lord, I am turning away from all my sins, whatever they are, and I'm asking you to forgive me of everything I've done. God, help me to learn from you. Help me to turn a corner and start walking in your ways according to your truth. God, show me the right path to live. And Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit because Lord, I can't do it on my own. I can't live a life pleasing to you on my own. I need your Holy Spirit to guide me, to instruct me, to encourage me, to empower me to be able to live that kind of life that pleases you. Lord, for all of us, I pray that you'll help us to love all people and to treat them like you do, regardless of their background. Lord, help us to call out sin in our life. Help us to remember that, Lord, it's like you say, we are to love the sinner and we're to hate my sin. We're to be reminded that that. We are never far from just sinner, we never get far from just being sinners saved by grace. So God, I pray that you'll work in each of our lives and help us to follow you, help us to represent you, and help others to know that there is a God of love and grace out there that cannot wait to reconcile every person out there to himself through Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.